You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Well, if you would stand for this morning's New Testament sermon reading. Uh, This morning's reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will begin in chapter 3, verse 18, and we will read a little bit into chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 3:18 Hear now the holy inspired inerrant and all sufficient word of God Let no one deceive himself If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age let him become a fool that he may become wise For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray just even one more time. Oh, gracious God, we recognize that your word is living that your word is active, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. We realize, Lord, that no one, no one is hidden from your sight. Everything is naked and exposed before you, Lord, So, Lord, have your way with your sword this morning. Cut to our hearts that our hearts might be purified by your word. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, in my introduction to our study in this book of 1 Corinthians, I pointed out that this letter was one of many one of many communications that took place over a number of years between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Messengers would journey from Corinth over into Ephesus where Paul was, and they would carry the news and concerns from the members and the leadership of the church in Corinth. And they would ask him questions, and they sought guidance from the Apostle Paul who had spent 18 months laboring diligently to establish the church there in that city of Corinth. In the 16 chapters that make up this letter, Paul addresses 10 
particular issues that were brought to his attention by those messengers who came from Corinth. Now, the great diversity of subjects that Paul addresses in this letter makes it very difficult to identify the main theological point of the book. However, however, there is one common thread that we seem to find in just about every section of this book. Let me read to you from Andrew David Nicelli because he identifies this common thread in his commentary when he writes this. He said, in one sentence, the theological message of 1 Corinthians is that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. The one theme that drives everything that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians is the gospel. And as we introduce this, I gave a couple of examples. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In chapter 4 and verse 15, he said, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter 9, verse 12, he said, For we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So you see how this thread just works its way through the entire book. And throughout this entire book, Paul keeps the main thing, the main thing. The gospel is essential in solving whatever issues the church may face in any age. Jesus Christ, God, came. The second person of the Trinity came to earth. He put on flesh and walked among us. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he gave himself as an offering for our sins, his life for ours, that we might receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the first concern that Paul addressed here in this book is found in chapter 1 and verse 10. When he said this, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And here Paul appeals to what we have called in the past these splintered saints, that they would be united in the common faith and not divided by all kinds of debates over the different styles and oratory skills of the preachers who were proclaiming God's word there in the city of Corinth. It becomes obvious then from Paul's writing that the church in Corinth was still greatly influenced by the pagan culture that surrounded it. Although they received the gospel as the only means of salvation, their continual pursuit of, of human wisdom, well, it, it stunted their growth. And their love for contemporary philosophy and for the entertainment of many orators, well, that brought divisions and all kinds of rivalries to this church at Corinth. And while the Corinthians thought that they were spiritually mature, because they were exercising all kinds of spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophesying, their petty arguments and immoral behavior proved that they were still babies in Christ, and they were still worldly. Well, from chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 17, Paul compares the, the folly of human wisdom and philosophy to the unfathomable depths and breadths of wisdom that God, that God has displayed through Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's the worldly wisdom and here is Jesus Christ the wisdom of God incarnate coming together. And Paul is making a comparison to show these Corinthians their immaturity in clinging to the ways of the world. Remember in chapter 2, Paul said, Yet among the mature, 
we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But rather, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Well, in his preaching, Paul declared the wisdom of God that was hidden, that was hidden in ages past, but has now been uncovered, that has now been revealed through the coming of Jesus Christ. It was to the apostles that God made known the unsearchable riches of Christ in order that they, by the Spirit, then would be able to declare and explain the mystery of God's secret wisdom through the proclamation of the gospel. To the Ephesian believers, Paul wrote this. He said, to me, to me, Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And now, as we come to chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul brings this whole section on division to a close. He sums it all up, and he concludes this thought with, with two other thoughts. He's going to conclude his thoughts and say this, how, then, how should believers view themselves? I think these are things that we, too, could benefit from. When he says, how do you view yourself? How do believers view themselves? And secondly, how should we, as believers, how should we view church leaders? These are very practical things that I think will benefit each of us as we look at chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4 and verse 5. Well, like a good preacher, the Apostle Paul brings the first point of his discourse to an end, and he does that with a summary statement that is actually very practical. After providing theological reasons why divisions in the church are so wrong, Paul closes this section with a few very frank and and very honest words. In verse 18, he warns them about self-deception. Self-deception. How many of us are able to fool ourselves with how we look at ourselves? Well, in verse 18, he said, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Hmm. Throughout this entire section, Paul has laid out the danger of allowing worldly wisdom and human philosophy to infiltrate the doctrine and the practice of the church. The wording... Well, the wording that Paul uses here in verse 18 implies that some of these Corinthians, well, some of them were actually deceiving themselves in the way that they were thinking. You see, they thought they they were mature. They had a high view of themselves. They thought they they are wise. They thought that they're mature in Christ. But in reality, as we go through this, we learn They're babes. They're infants in Christ. You may think that you're really mature, but in reality, let's take a second look. Although they were redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, they continued to walk in the ways of the world rather than by the Spirit of God. Some of them were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. They evaluated their lives and the lives of their brothers by worldly standards rather than by the Word of God. And this is evident not only in the petty rivalries and the foolish divisions that were splintering the church, but also in their dealings with 
chapter 5, where we'll see that, well, they were all behind one brother who was living in gross immorality. And they were proud of him. Well, that's the ways of the world. Even today, that's the ways of the world. But Paul will say, you think you're mature? And you're agreeing with or standing with this brother who's living in immorality with his stepmother? Oh, my. And then in chapter 6, these Corinthians are bringing lawsuits against one another in civil court rather than coming to the elders of the church to handle their various disputes. Again, these are all signs of gross immaturity in the church. Well, here at the end of chapter 3, Paul explains that the remedy, the remedy for their spiritual immaturity is to stop thinking like pagans and focus on the cross. Focus on the cross. In order to be truly wise, they needed to embrace the very thing that the philosophers of this world thought was utter foolishness. In verse 18, Paul said, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. You see, the wisdom of God is clearly displayed on the cross where justice and mercy come together in the beaten, bruised, and bloodied body of Jesus Christ who is God in human flesh. The world thinks that the cross is utter foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul's words are yet another example of how the wisdom of God is revealed in paradoxes. A paradox if you want to really be wise, you must become a fool. How is, he, how is he viewing this? Well, honestly, because the world thinks that the gospel is foolishness, you must then become a fool in order to truly become wise in God's eyes. Well, other paradoxes that we see throughout the New Testament where Jesus is speaking, and the only way that we can truly understand him is if we are born of God, if we truly understand as the Spirit brings light to us, then we understand in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39, he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Another paradox about the kingdom disciples. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is utter foolishness to the people who don't know the Lord. But for you and I, we understand that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. And that if we would put ourselves first, then we will be last. But if we, by the grace of God, like Christ, will humble ourselves and be content to be the very last, then we are exalted in the sight of God. Now, friends, it is only as the Spirit of God reveals the wisdom of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ that these paradoxes will make any sense whatsoever. It is only by yielding ourselves to Christ, by giving up our sinful past, our, our troubled present, and our unknown future, by yielding our lives to the Lordship of Christ, then, then and only then will we find eternal and truly abundant life. Well, in verse 19 and 20, Paul quotes two Old Testament texts that further prove his point. In verse 19, he says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. In this first section, he quotes Job 5.13, which I wanted to be read today, but I must have misinterpreted that, and Psalm 94, verse 11. In these verses, Paul affirms that while the, the craftiness of men might fool some people some of the time, while we are, are easily deceived, 
God is never fooled. He's never fooled. He's not fooled by the mask that we put on. He's not fooled by our hypocrisy. God is never fooled. He will see to it that those who use human wisdom to manipulate other people will eventually be caught in their own craftiness. And one of the best examples that I know of this truth is found in the life of Haman, the Agagite, in the book of Esther. Let's read a little bit of that this morning. In chapter 3 of the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, who was an Agagite, and advanced him and set his throne above all of the other officials who were with him. And all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Great is Haman. Wow, great. You're a great guy. But for the king had so commanded concerning Haman. But then we get this text. It says, but Mordecai. Remember Mordecai? Mordecai was the queen's uncle, Queen Esther's uncle. He did not bow down, nor did he pay homage to Haman. You see, there was some history behind these two, Haman and Mordecai. There was a problem between them. But as you might expect, Mordecai's refusal to bow down. Haman walks by, and everybody in the kingdom is bowing down to him. Mordecai's just not bowing down. Right? Well, that, that, that infuriated Haman. His, in his uncontrolled anger, then Haman doesn't merely want to destroy Mordecai. He devised a plan to wipe out the entire Jewish population of the land. He's going to destroy every single Jew because Mordecai did not bow down to me. Hmm. Well, in verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, You know, King There is a certain people, a certain people who are scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws, well, you know, their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. King, why are you tolerating them? They don't even keep your laws. They have other laws. And then he comes up with an idea. Haman says, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay, well, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. I'll give you 10 grand, Lord, just to destroy these people. Well, you might say Ahasuerus took the money and ran. So the, pro- the uh, process of destroying all of the Jews in all of the land began to be set in motion. And as you might expect, when Mordecai learned of Haman's scheme, Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went to Queen Esther, who was in the palace, and he told Queen Esther all that was going on. And Esther then called for a time of fasting before she would go in and talk to the king about this problem. And the king then would hear her and respond. Well, as you know, through the wisdom of Queen Esther and the intervention of God, the tables were turned on Haman. And Haman, in fact, was hanged on the very gallows that he had constructed to destroy all of the Jews. Now, God, in his wisdom, had turned the cunning, deceitful schemes of Haman upside down, and we might say God was able to work all things together for good for those who loved him and were called according to his purposes. Well, back in 1 Corinthians, in the closing verses of chapter 3, Paul shines a light on the godly wisdom and the foolish, divisive behavior of the Corinthians. God is able, you see, to turn the tables on those who seek to destroy God's people. Earlier in this this chapter, he said, those who destroy God's temple, God will destroy. All of that is in the context of what Paul is saying here. And in verse 21, he writes, let no one boast in man. 
For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Here Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers, you guys need to stop boasting about men. You need to stop quarreling. You need to stop fighting over your leaders. You need to stop identifying yourself with certain preachers as if you belong to them because in reality, they all belong to you. They're segregating themselves, aligning themselves under a certain preacher saying, I belong to him. No, I belong to him. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Paul says, wait a minute. All of them, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, they all belong to you. You have this wrong. God called these men. God equipped these men. God gave these men to the church as gifts of grace. And they are engaged in the labor of building the temple. And guess what? You are that temple. Even today, even today, when believers identify themselves with their favorite preachers, when believers will boast about the great insights that this preacher has or that preacher has, people seek to impress others by the authors that they're reading or the preachers that they're listening to. Oh, I was just listening to so-and-so. Aren't you impressed that I listened to him? Well, if you're doing that to prove that you're better or that you're smarter than someone else, then you're displaying the same immaturity that the Corinthians displayed. Paul went on to affirm the fact that God has truly blessed the church with wonderful gifts of grace, powerful servants of God who had great spiritual insight. And he said, you know what? They all belong to you. Instead of arguing over which one is the best, Instead of seeking to impress one another by our allegiance to some great man, we should thank God that we are in Christ and that Christ is in God and that all of these things belong to us by virtue of our union with Christ Jesus. Instead of arguing, instead of debating, instead of seeking to, express, to impress one another by our allegiances, we need to understand the mercy and grace of God that has been poured out upon us as believers. And he goes on to expand this, and he says, and nothing in the world, neither life nor death, nor things that are present, nor things that are future, none of these things will be able to separate us from Christ because we are in him and he is in God And this is similar to what he said in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? He said, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, beloved, these are rich words rich words that speak of the durability of this great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus because we are in him, because we have been moved into a union with Christ by faith, then we, then we, oh Lord, are secure in him. There is death will not take us out of Christ. Neither will anything that comes in this life There are no angels that are able to separate you from him. There's nothing in all of creation that is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So why would we fight with one another? How then should we view ourselves? How should believers view themselves? Well, frankly, we should view ourselves with great humility, knowing that we are the recipients of an abundance of grace that God has poured out upon us in Christ. As Paul will remind the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 7, he said this, What do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You don't need to take credit for the grace of God that has been poured out upon you because it comes from God. It didn't come from you. You received it. So why would you boast about it when it is a gift that has been poured out upon you? Why would you take credit for it? Why would you boast about this great gift of salvation as if there was something in you that deserved it, as if there was something in you that earned it? It's all of grace, so why would you boast if you received it by grace? Now that we know how we should view ourselves, let's turn to chapter 4 and consider how we should view the leaders that God has provided for his people. This was important to the Corinthians because they were not viewing them. They were judging them. Oh, this one is better than that. This one is better than that. They're judging them. But how should we then view our leaders? As part of their immaturity... As a part of their divisive behavior, the Corinthians were using worldly standards to evaluate. They were using fleshly criterion to judge their leaders that God sent to them. In chapter 3, Paul told the Corinthians that all those who labor in the building of God's temple will one day give an account to God for the work that they have done. And now in his summary, Paul gives the Corinthians a proper a godly way to consider or a godly way to look at the servants of God instead of assessing them on the basis of personality, instead of assessing them on the basis of eloquence, they should consider a man's faithfulness to God and to his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, when Paul says, this is how you should regard us, the us that he's speaking of here is the church leaders that have been sent to Corinth, like himself, like Apollos, like Cephas, whom God called the stewards of the mysteries of God. In the same way that the Corinthians needed to remember that their true identity was found in their relationship with Jesus Christ, they needed to evaluate their leaders by godly standards and not fleshly standards. Excuse me. First, he says this. He says, they are servants of Christ. And folks, this is the only place in all of Paul's writing where he uses this particular word that is translated servants. They are servants of Christ. It's the only place that Paul uses this word. It's the same word that was used when God called Paul to the ministry of an apostle. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is speaking of this. Actually, Luke is writing this. And it's when You remember when he was on the road to Damascus and he fell down and God revealed the glory of Christ to him. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant. To appoint you as a servant. This is the same exact word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians, and it's the only place that he uses it in all of his writings. To appoint you as a servant, as a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Well, this word, servant, it's a very unique word. Sometimes it's translated minister. It could be uniquely translated Under rower, under rower. Now, does that make any sense? Well, it did in that day. Some would say it referred to the slaves, the lowest of slaves that were held down in the hole of a ship, those who were laboring at rowing. They're underneath. They're at the bottom part of the ship, and they are rowing. They are under rowers, and they're rowing and moving the ship in the proper direction. But by worldly standards, this specific title was given to slaves, actually the lowest of slaves, who had no will of their own. Their purpose was to accomplish the will of their master. They were chained to an oar, and they were rowing. 
In the same way, when God calls a man to serve him, he must set aside his fleshly will for the joy of serving his master. The second description of this church church leadership that Paul provides us is that they are stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when you hear this word steward, if you were with us for the study in Genesis, you may recall that Joseph, Joseph was the steward in Potiphar's house. Remember how he was responsible to carry out all of Potiphar's business and to manage all of the affairs of his household in obedience and in diligence. This is what Paul is saying. I'm simply a steward. And remember that as a steward, Joseph was also a slave. He was a slave in Potiphar's house, but he had risen up to where he was responsible for all of the affairs of Potiphar's house. In the same way, Paul is saying that he is a steward, a steward of the things of God. Back in chapter 3, Paul wrote, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God assigned each one a job to do, and they faithfully did that job as stewards of God. Well, at the point when he's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul had been judged He had been judged by the immature believers in Corinth. And in their judgment, he was, well, he was far less dynamic. He was far less impressive than some of the other preachers who came into Corinth. He wasn't the most handsome of men. Certainly, he was not the most eloquent of speakers. The Corinthians were evaluating their leaders by worldly standards. They were entertained by someone, so they followed them. Paul had great doctrine, but he just didn't communicate it as well as some others did. Paul told them that God's standards for leadership is very different from the standards of man. And he continued in verse 2 saying, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. So how does God view his stewards? How does God view those who are given the responsibility to lead the church? Well, they must be faithful. It's not eloquence. It's not wisdom. It's, it is faithfulness, which God rewards in his stewards. In both the Old and the New Testament, the foremost quality that God looks for in his leaders is faithfulness. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. In 1 Samuel twenty-two fourteen, David was described as being faithful to God. In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 4, not only was Daniel faithful to God, but he showed himself faithful in all of the responsibilities that he had in the court of the king. Also, as Paul wrote, he wrote of Timothy and, and Tychius, who are both described as faithful ministers. As we apply this to our lives, God has gifted us all very differently. And what he's looking for is not that everyone be eloquent, not that everyone be the most wise person in the world, but that you be faithful to God and faithful to use the gifts and talents that he's given to you. On that day when you stand before the Lord, the standard by which you will be judged is a standard of faithfulness. Were you faithful? Were you faithful? Why is this faithfulness so important? Well, frankly, because God is faithful, isn't he? God is faithful, and his ministers must display the faithfulness of God in all that they do. And on that great day when the Lord returns, the words that we long to hear, these are words we've heard from the Gospel of Matthew. The words that we all long to hear are these, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There it is again. 
that we will be judged according to our faithfulness. Now, moving on at first sight, the words that Paul writes in chapter 4 and verse 3 appear to be, well, just maybe a little bit arrogant, maybe even a little bit flippant. When he says this, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Oh, wow, Paul. But when you read these things, and you read them in the context of a servant's responsibility to the master of the house, you can see that Paul's comments, well, they're really not flippant at all. They're not meant to insult the Corinthians. He's simply stating a fact. And the fact is that the steward of a great estate may receive criticism from some of the other slaves. He may be, they may be jealous of him. Some of the vendors that he deals with may complain because he's a hard businessman. But in fact, in the end, the only opinion that truly matters, the only judgment that really concerns us is the judgment that Jesus Christ will make on that final day. The steward is responsible to his master. The only opinion that matters is God's opinion. And he is judging us according to the faithfulness of things that he has given to us. Well, Paul is so preoccupied with that great and final day that whatever assessment the Corinthians were making didn't really matter to him. It doesn't matter what you think. I am consumed with what God thinks. And Paul takes this subject even uh, of judgment just a step deeper when he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, while Paul may not be conscious of any grievous sin in his life, he understands that any assessment that he would make of himself is limited by his own mind, limited by his own experience. He is easily deceived, and his judgment that he might make even of himself would be limited by his imperfect knowledge. But the one who judges us is perfect in knowledge, perfect in wisdom. So we can leave our judgment to him and not judge ourselves. In verse 4, Paul said, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Just because I feel good about myself doesn't mean that I'm living as I should. I may actually be self-deceived. But there is one thing that I know for sure. There is a day coming when I will stand before the Lord and that day is the day that motivates me today. Verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, in summary of all that I've said, he issues a command to these Corinthians. He says, Listen, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Remember, in the context, he's dealing with the judgmentalism of immature believers who are lining up behind different people for fleshly reasons. And he says, don't pronounce judgment. Don't judge me. Don't judge the other servants that God sent. They're his servants, not yours. He will judge them in time. And so, my friends, let's not be quick to render judgments regarding the servants of God. After all, they are God's servants and not ours. And on that great day, God will bring to light the hidden motives, the hidden attitudes, the thoughts and ambitions that are presently hidden from the eyes of man. But then on that day, everything, everything will be exposed by the searchlight of God's omniscience. On that great day, everything will be exposed and God himself will render his judgment. In Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 2, Solomon said, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. We can easily think that we're doing okay. I'm moving along. I'm doing okay. But God is the one who weighs the hearts. And Paul tells us that each and every servant of the Lord, every blood-bought believer, will receive on that day his his commendation. 
not from his fellow worker, not from the angels, but from God himself. On that great day when the full effects of our lives have run their course, when all of the faithfulness of your life goes through your children, through your grandchildren, when all of the effects of the godliness and, and, and righteousness that, that, that you have expressed in love for Christ, when all of that runs its course, on the final day, that is when the judgment will take place. And the one who presides over this judgment, the one who will assess our lives our ministries, our motives, and how we have used the talents that God has given to us is none other than the Lord himself. Now, as we bring this to a close, we remember now that every one of us has received our own unique gifts and talents in this life As Jesus described in his parable, some receive ten talents, others receive five talents, some others receive one talent, and they are required as the master has gone away to be faithful with those talents that God has invested in them. And each one of us will give an account of our stewardship on that great day of the Lord. Well, it may seem easy for us to compare ourselves to one another, like the Corinthians did, and come up with our own judgment as to how, how are you doing, how are they doing, how are we doing. We are easy to judge one another like that, but we may be wrong in our judgment because we don't see the whole picture like God sees it. Steve Lawson, in his sermon on this text, said this. He said, imagine in front of this pulpit that there are two large containers that were made to hold large amounts of liquid. Both of these containers are presently holding exactly two gallons of liquid. They're even. They're equal. They both hold two liquid gallons. However, one of those containers was designed by its maker to hold a different amount. The total capacity of this first container, total capacity was two gallons, and it was filled to the brim. It, was conta- it contained everything that it could possibly contain. It was maxed out. It was flowing over, a two-gallon container flowing over with two gallons of liquid. The second container also was holding two gallons of liquid. However, that particular can- container was designed to hold 20 gallons of liquid. It could have held so much more than the two-gallon container. It could have held so much more than the two gallons that it presently holds. But who knew? All we're looking at is that each one has two gallons of water. Only God knows the capacity of his own people. Only God knows how much he has designed us to be able to contain. The judgment... of which these two containers, which one was faithful, which one was trustworthy, which one was used by God to its fullest capacity, obviously the two-gallon container that is holding two gallons of liquid made the best use of its capacity for the glory of God. Each one of us is designed uniquely to show forth the glory of God with the various gifts and talents that he has poured out upon us. He is the designer. He's the one who has created us for his glory with with the various capacities that each one of us has. We can all look at two believers who are doing the same exact thing and wrongly think that they will receive the same exact reward on the day of the Lord, and we would be wrong because all of us possess a different capacity to serve the master. Some have greater giftings. Some have greater intellect. Some have greater opportunities. Some people have more time than other people have. Some have grown up in a better home than others. Some have greater gifting. On that final day, all those who believe will receive their reward based on the talents that God has given to them. So my question is, are you using your time, the time that God has given to you, 
Are you using the talents that God has given to you? Are you using the treasures that God has given to you for God's glory? Or are you just content? Content to give a little bit of yourself to the Lord, to be used a little bit of God so that you can also enjoy the pleasures of this passing world for a season. While we may not really have a good handle on our capacity, we do by the revelation of the Spirit of God, understand who Christ is. He has gifted you. He has talented you for his glory that you might serve him with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your might, that he would be exalted in your life. And as you go from this life into the next one, as God sends his son to judge the living and the dead, In that judgment, there will be rewards that are given. Those rewards will be based upon stewardship. What has God given you? And how have you used what he has given? R.C. Sproul said this. He said, right now counts for eternity. Right now counts for eternity. What are you doing right now what are you doing to glorify God in your life right now it may be that you're here this morning and you have never entered into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for your salvation the scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man He came and gave his life as a ransom to rescue those who believe from the wrath of God that has come upon them, that will come upon them because of their sin. To receive Christ by faith is to repent of your sins, to believe on him, and to give yourself Give yourself as an offering of praise and adoration to him every day. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you that you have gifted us each uniquely for your glory to serve you with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might. Lord, all of this is your grace at work within our lives. We pray that you would be glorified in us and in this church. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.